0: Do you know what's missing in that video? I've seen it probably a half a dozen times. And um, it, is, it, is, it is his story, and it's a powerful story. And it is a story of redemption and grace that comes when we come to the cross. But you know what's missing in that story, in, in my opinion? I think what's missing in that story is his father, his father. That boy needs a father, a father to come alongside of him and to say, "My son," a father who will say, "I love you," a father who will say, you let me carry those bags or drop those bags." Is there such a father who would do that? Yes, oh yes. And I want you to meet this father this morning. There is a father. There's a father who wants to to spare his son from the hurt of sexual impurity. There's a father who wants to mentor his son in the way of wisdom. There's a father who wants to teach his son what God-ordained sexuality is about. And what I love about this father is that he begins his conversations with two very important words My son. My son. He wants his son to know that he loves him. He wants his son to know that he's in his family, that his son cannot earn his love, and that nothing can separate them from his love. What a father! What a father. That's the tone that I want us to hear as we begin a conversation about sexual purity, respecting your body. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5, you'll find that on page 530 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take the copy that's in the pouch in front of you, put your name in it and receive it as a gift from this church family. And I would like for us to listen to this father's words. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sheol, that's the Hebrew understanding of the afterlife. Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. In your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is God's Word. Well, what gets my attention first about these verses is the fact that The father takes initiative to teach his sons about sexuality. I mean, and and this shows up in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 7. Notice he says, either my son or my sons. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 7 Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 1. My son, that's, this is important to take note of. Two and a half chapters deal with sexuality. This is important. And why? Because the father is smart enough to know that there are other voices in this world who would be more than happy to indoctrinate and inform and entice his sons as to the meaning and expression of sexuality. So then this father refuses to be passive. He refuses to uh, let his sons come to their own conclusions. He refuses to leave them to their own adolescent thinking. He refuses to let them define marriage and sexuality on their own terms. He knows that if he takes a pass at mentoring his sons, especially in this topic, someone else will happily fill the void. And so he says, we need to talk. We need to talk. And and it's not just one talk. It's a series of talks. Proverbs 5, that's a talk. Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7. A series of of, of lifelong lessons, a series of wisdom-sharing sessions between a loving father and his son's. And so if his sons fail, it's not going to be for lack of instruction. The father's intentionality in teaching his sons about biblical sexuality, that's what I first see here. And and we need to take note. As Christians, we say that sex is a gift from God, and yet we're strangely silent on the topic. You know, we fidget we kind of feel uncomfortable, you know, when it's talked about. We're thinking to ourselves, Randy, I've been praying for six months for my, best, for my best friend to come to church, and this morning, you talk about sex? Really? Really, you know? The first two rows are conspicuously absent here, I, you know? What is this like? People came in and said, okay, Mr. Scott, raise your shields. You know, what is going on here? (laughs) But, uh, you know, we sometimes do feel uncomfortable discussing sexuality and and we treat this area in a way that's uniquely different from the other important areas of life and that leads to a lack of sexual balance and a lack of openness and a lack of clear biblical education in other words discussions about sexuality tend to get put outside of normal Christian conversation as if the topic were hush-hush or taboo as if we were sex negative or as if sexuality is less than good well As I said earlier, the world is all too eager to inform our sons and daughters about its views of sexuality, and we cannot let its voice overpower the voice of God. We cannot allow the world to be the primary source of guidance for our sons and daughters. And so, as a Christian community, from congregation to home, we need to lovingly say, with the father of Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7, my son... Oh my son listen listen so let's do that let's listen let's listen to the stories that the father tells his boys teaching them wisdom wisdom about healthy god honoring christ exalting sexuality and And we're reminded in these chapters that the voice of Proverbs, Proverbs was written as a parenting manual. And the voice is the voice of a father to a son. And we can remember that these relationships deal with not only fathers and sons, but fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and mothers and daughters. Stories. Stories concerning wisdom about God honor, honoring sexuality. And, and there's three of them, and here they are. First will be the story of a thirst-quenching spring. It's a wonderful story. And then there'll be the story of a, a burning Weber grill. And then thirdly, the story of a midnight Mardi Gras stroll. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, a spring, a grill, and a stroll. Let's talk about the spring first, the story of this thirst-quenching spring. Proverbs 5 is organized kind of like a sandwich uh, on Both ends of Proverbs chapter 5, the beginning and the end, there are warnings, but then there's the meat, the main point, right in the middle of the chapter. And here's the meat. The meat is that God has declared marriage to be between a man and a woman as a thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying union. That shows up in verse 15. Look, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. These images uh, that follow in verses 15 and beyond are actually quite erotic. Uh, There's nothing hush-hush or taboo in the book of Proverbs about sexuality. So this word picture of a cistern carved out of solid rock that collects and stores rainwater, that's the picture of a womb And then in verse 16, scholars contend that the springs and streams of of water are either A, the seed of a husband, or B, simply the deep, refreshing satisfaction of sexual love itself. Verses 16 and 17 insist, though, that these springs must never be unleashed into the streets. The sweet spring-like waters contained in the cistern of marriage must remain in marriage. Note the repetition in verses 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. Your cistern, your well, your springs, let them be for yourself alone. So, romantic sexual love is to be exclusive and within the marital union of a man and a woman. And why? Because that's how God designed marriage. So, right here, we're forced with a choice. Am I going to accept marriage as God has designed and defined it? Or will my, will my definition of marriage be from below? Be, will, it be, will it be marriage from above or marriage from below? See Who gets to define marriage and sexuality? God or man? See, and the Proverbs writer says, well, God... He made marriage. Genesis 2.24 says that when a husband and a wife unite, their union, the two, become one. That union is so profound that they, they virtually become a new single person. God made marriage to unite two lives into one. And in marriage, two lives merge into a single, legal, social, economic unit. They voluntarily lose much of their independence In love, they donate themselves to one another. They donate themselves to one another. Listen, there is always something given away in a sexual encounter, always. And sex outside marriage dilutes this donation and it confuses the donors. To give your body to someone to whom you will not give your own life, that's confusing, Tim Keller has written an excellent book called The The Meaning of Marriage. And he wrote these words In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This is confusing. And this confusion leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. And it makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Well, sexual intimacy is in fact the act of uniting. And so this Proverbs father says to his boys in no uncertain terms he says boys if you take what doesn't belong to you you're going to lose what does look at verses 8 through 10 keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others And your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. And you can hear the regret in verses 12 and 13. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. Is there a better way? Oh, yes. Yes. The Father says, yes. Verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of... Not, it doesn't say rejoice when your wife was youthful. It doesn't say that. Stop that. It says rejoice in the wife of your youth. That girl you married when both of you were younger. By now, decades have gone by. Good days and bad days and seasons and sunshine and gray skies and weddings and, yes, funerals. She's still that girl who gave herself to you on your wedding day. She put herself in your arms. She could not have been more vulnerable. Remember that. Dwell on that. Marvel at that. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. I'm talking about developing the the spiritual skill of rejoicing in your spouse, rejoicing in your wife. For me, that looks like this. Randy, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in Sarah. She's been a faithful and loyal wife of 30 years, and she still is. She has labored to give birth to two sons. She works to pay for our son's college education. She loves our boys. She enjoys them. She talks with them. She listens to them. She makes a killer bowl of Chinese beef noodle soup. She loves God. She praised him. My wife prays to God and reads his word in journals. She calms me when I'm panicky. She's patient with my work schedule. She gets it. That ministry is not an 8 to 5 Monday through Friday job. She gets it. And she comes to my office every Sunday. And she prays for me before I come out here to preach. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. What refreshment, what sweet water, what a gift from God. Oh, but the father in Proverbs 5 keeps going. He's not finished. Look at verse 19. He says, be intoxicated always by her love. (laughs) Be intoxicated always. I mean, the verb is used elsewhere for a, a, a guy staggering in drunkenness. I mean, he just... He just punched drunk love. The point is that a husband and wife should be in crazy love together. You hear what the father is saying? This this is not taboo. This tells us something about God. Romance. Romance is not from evolution simply for the survival of the human species. Romance is from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Romance is a renewal of your wedding vows. Romance reveals God. Ultimate reality is not frigid darkness of outer space with no purpose or passion. Ultimate reality is romance. God loves us, and not with a platonic love, but with a romantic love. God does not love us with frosty apathy, but with white-hot delight. That's who. He is. So when you see a man and a woman in committed marital love, what you're seeing is a copy of the original. The full color, high definition story of the Son of God come down to win to His heart with great suffering, a bride from the wrong side of town. God created this universe for the purpose of telling that love story over and over and over in the lives of your marriages and that's why sexuality matters whether you're married or single just being a man is a gospel privilege just being a woman is a gospel privilege what we are about is the gospel and that's why we need to learn gospel sexuality and that's why we need to be reminded of this story of this thirst-quenching water of marriage between a husband and a wife. Listen to me, listen to me. Your marriage is not a prison and you have not received a death sentence except to your own selfishness. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's story number one. Story number two is in chapter six. Proverbs goes from fire, excuse me, from water to fire. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or, 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 Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's a heavy tone, intentionally too. We go from water to fire. We go from a refreshing story of a thirst-quenching spring to a warning story of a Weber grill. We go from, we go from the big sky, thirst-quenching joy of, of married love to the little sky, self-centered, individualistic fire. Big sky, little sky. Big big sky, big sky sex is a thirst-quenching spring. Little sky sex is a pile of fiery coals. Big sky sex will satisfy you. Little sky sex will burn you. Big sky sex worships God. Little sky sex worships idols. Big sky sex submits to God's own plans. Little sky sex writes its own plans. Big sky sex is driven by self-giving commitment. Little sky sex is dominated by self-centered pleasures. Big sky sex is viewed as a part of life. Little sky sex tends to take over your life. And if we go our own way, the Father in Proverbs chapter chapter 6 tells us that's like picking up a, a Weber grill brimming with white hot coals and thinking you won't get burned. Now who does that? Well, people do. And the father is trying to protect his boy from inevitable ruin. And you can just hear the boy say, well, dad, I mean, what what on earth would make that fool scoop up fire thinking that he wouldn't get burned? And the father answers and says, well, notice the fire's origin. The, fire, the fire's origin is not in the prostitute. And it's not in the Forbidden married woman of verse 26, that's not where the fire's origin is from. The fire's not in her eyelashes, and the fire is not even in her beauty. You know where the fire was? The fire, verse 25, was in the fool's heart. You see that? Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Sexual straying is a heart issue. Listen, <laughs> sexual immorality happens in the heart long before it ever occurs in the bed. And this fool scoops up the fire because he has said, well, nobody's ever felt this way before. Nobody's had to deal with what I've had to deal with. I can handle it. I'm not like everybody else. The the statistics don't apply to me, and they don't apply to my kids. And I know what's best for me. My passion runs deep, and the fire of love will keep us alive. Everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to get burned. But no, he was. Look, his chest was burned. Verse 27 His feet were burned. Look, verse 28. And then look. I mean, this tryst involved his neighbor's wife. And that in a far less mobile society than ours. So it's not like he's going to sell his house and move to Sedona. Verse 32 says, he just simply self-destructs. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And you know why? Because he thought he was the exception. And as long as you're convinced that you're the exception, as long as you keep saying that your situation and your emotions and your desires and your passions are different, as long as you deceive yourself, you're going to chase those feelings to the neglect of wisdom. And at the end of the day, you're going to find out that you're not so different after all. The outcomes were inevitable. Lonely is lonely, no matter how much money you make. Addicted is addicted, no matter who you know. Guilty is guilty, no matter what you drive. And depressed is depressed, no matter what you take. The story of a Weber grill. Can a man carry fire to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? No. No. He can't. And you can just almost hear the son saying, well, Dad, I mean, how how am I going to just keep from getting burned? How am I going to just even keep away from that grill? And this is where the father takes him to the third story. He tells him the story of this midnight Mardi Gras stroll. Tells his son to come on upstairs. He said, let's take a look at something outside the window. And they get up there to the room, look outside the window, and it's kind of one of those twilight zone moments. Peers out the window. And there, kind of in the mist and the fog, comes this shadowy silhouette, this figure, and the boy looks out, and he sees someone that looks just like himself. In fact, it's... My goodness, the boy sees himself walking down the street. It's night. The sun has set. The city was coming to life. Look at Proverbs chapter 7, beginning at verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street, near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And then she appeared, I mean almost out of nowhere. Suddenly she shows up voluptuously dressed, lips cherry red. Verse ten says she's wily of heart. Verse twelve speak of her feet, they don't stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market. In other words, that which was expected to be kept within marriage is spilled out into the market. And suddenly, this young man gets ambushed by her kiss. Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, I've been to church, given my offering. I've got fresh linens from Egypt. You smell the fragrance? You smell the perfume? The scents which trigger. Sensuous behavior. She says, my husband's gone. He's on a business trip. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. So he goes. He goes into her house. He enters the bedroom. He slips into bed beneath the Egyptian linen. And suddenly, suddenly, he can't breathe. And there's, there's blood all over from his throat. It's been slashed. And he looks down, and there's an arrow sticking through him. My goodness. Verses 22 and 23, look. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. You know how they slaughtered oxen back then? Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, surely a fatal wound. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Think for a moment. Think back to the decisions that you made preceding a relationship you regret. And at some point, you probably said to yourself, I wish I had never called her. I wish I had never accepted his invitation. I wish I had not responded to the text. I wish I had not taken that trip. I wish I had never subscribed to. I wish I had listened to my mother. You think back far enough, you can probably string together a series of decisions that led you to the brink of something you now regret. And what's the father's point here? His point is this. Church family, every moral failure is preceded by a series of unwise choices. Think about it. Think about your greatest moral regret. Isn't it true that your decision to Cross a certain moral line was predicated on a series of choices that led to that final and most regretful one. Isn't it true that, that you marched right along, justifying every choice with, well, there's nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong with. And you know what? You were right. You were absolutely right. There's nothing wrong. There's there's nothing wrong with strolling in the nightlife. There's nothing wrong with meeting a pretty lady. There's nothing wrong with admiring her beauty. There's nothing wrong with talking with her. Nothing wrong at all. But that's really not the question. It's not. The question is not, is this wrong? The question is, where is this headed? Where is this going? And one Nothing wrong with choice led to another and all of a sudden you got an arrow sticking out of your gut. So many things in our world bait us to the edge of moral disaster and it's because it's all legal, acceptable, and permissible and we take the bait in the name of freedom. And Proverbs 14, 12 is just as true today as it was when it was first written in Solomon's day there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death so this dad is telling his sons my son my son be wise wise people know when they don't know the, the fool convinces himself that he knows more than he really knows and he doesn't need to ask anybody anything and at the end of the day the wise man breathes a sigh of relief and the fool a sigh of regret. The story of a midnight Mardi Gras stroll. There it is. Three stories. The spring, the grill, and a stroll. And there's stories too, you know? The dad just doesn't say, well, start this and stop that. and That's that. He tells a story the story of this thirst-quenching spring, this story of the silly Weber grill, the story of a fatal Mardi Gras attraction. And all toward the end of pleading with his son this one timeless eternal truth, which is simply this. My son, there is a woman who can keep you from the forbidden woman, and her name is Wisdom, wisdom, Proverbs 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And that word sister, in this context, the Hebrews would call a lover sister, term of endearment. Uh, It is echoed in the back half of that verse. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. You see that? Dad is trying to say, Son, wisdom is the only woman who can keep you from the forbidden woman. And if you marry wisdom first, then you will have a satisfying life whether you are married or single. That's His Word. And i got to be honest with you, church. I mean... Okay, now what? I mean, it's like, well, okay, now well, now what? See, the truth of the matter is whether in thought, word or deed, we've all we've all blown it. We have. We come to this congregation and uh, in, in, in thought, word or deed, we're all we're all in. Proverbs 5.14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. That's us. That's me. You're not by yourself. We're all here. In some way or another, we've all failed. So so you're not going to get shamed by your past here or by this pastor. You've come to the right place because we want to meet wisdom. And here's the Here's the gospel. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. (laughs) Jesus, Christ, is the power of God and the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Christ wants to be your spouse. The lady wisdom is the bridegroom Jesus. Jesus. He is the power of God to forgive our past, and He is the wisdom of God to guide us for today and every day. So bring your baggage to Him. Bring your sins to Him. And lay them at the foot of the cross. He promises to forgive you. He promises to renew your broken life. You become joined to the Lord Jesus Christ in body and spirit through His finished work on the cross. He gave Himself completely to you by grace, and you give yourself completely to Him by faith. And I mean, here's even the good news upon good news is that through Christ, who is now not only crucified, dead, and buried, but He's risen, He's ascended, He's seated, He has sent His Holy Spirit into the lives and hearts of His church as His holy people. We are holy people. He walks with us. So that we don't have to be in that picture by ourselves. We are accompanied by the spirit of Jesus. We don't have to carry baggage. And we can take that good news. And we can go into our community. And we can be good news in the lives of others. Here's how forgiven holy people look. And that, church family, is what it means to be a life-changing community, passionately Pursuing Christ. Amen.